We'll uh, we'll get some prayer. All right. Who wants to do this? Who hasn't done? Johnny, have you done it? The town recently? recently? Not recently. All right. Inside cover. Here's the first half. Pluralize it for the three of us, or for the other men watching. Oh, at home. May it be your will, on an iron God, that a mishap not come about through us. And may we not stumble in a matter of law and cause our colleagues to rejoice over us. And may we not say regarding something which is Tameh that it is Tahor, and not regarding something which is Tahor that it is Tameh. And may our colleagues not stumble in a matter of law, and we rejoice over them. For out an eye grants wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding of God. Unveil our eyes that we may perceive wonders from your Torah. Amen. Thank you. All right, so here's my uh, here's my plan. Here we'll just kind of we're walking through three chapters, nine, ten, and eleven. Um, I, Pretty I, short. Yeah, it shouldn't be so bad. Um, I had I had significant troubles with with uh, one paragraphish part of it. So when we get to that. I'm, I'm going to look to you guys to bring some wisdom if you got some, and we can just kind of chat about what opportunities there may be or, or may, we may be missing. Um, I think the time references are real important because uh, as I read through as you did the, the commentary yeah. from there they, these guys are all over the map all over the know? place and some of them I don't want to say they're comical I think that's disrespectful but some of them I, I like the fact that they actually that, that actually in the commentary it's like so and so said this to which the other person said rebuked him strongly are, are you kidding me <laughs> this is me paraphrasing right um at which point the first person said, well, that is an interpretation. <laughs> yeah. Some of them are... I, I, I some suggest that some of, them, some of them are, are <laughs> deliberately trying to avoid at times, I think, some of the references back to the uh, end of the Second Temple period there. But They said that interpretation didn't hold water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we've got. Um, it's an interesting situation with with the time frames, which I think only comes back to what we've kind of been saying about Zachariah, Zachariah from the beginning, which is that his prophecy is very difficult to decipher. Out of all of the prophecies in Scripture, his are probably the most confusing. Yeah, some are of his. In this in this nine to eleven, I think we can uh, nail down some of the things, mm-hmm. um, but. To your point, next Which one week, is it? Yeah. next week oh, could right. could refute some of what we come th- come out with this week. Right. Um, but next week, I mean, you're getting into some really wild stuff. Okay. So um, one thing that stood out to me, just as jumping in, yeah. did you get something to start off with? No. Go ahead. Um, I thought it was intriguing that he he highlights Damascus as his resting place. This is chapter nine, verse one. Correct. Um, and the sages interpret that as saying that Israel will control the period of, of known as Damascus area, known as Damascus in Syria, um, uh, which is intriguing because in a different passage, I want to say it's Isaiah, it talks about Damascus being wiped out and not being inhabited anymore, which is very, in, which is like a it almost seems like a, I wouldn't say conflicting because it's not conflicting, but it's more like. Huh, I wonder how that's going to all right, work together right. kind of if, deal. Surely they're complementary, but how, how does that work? This and particular comment says that God's Shekinah will rest in Damascus, where it too will become a city of Israel. But alternatively, this, this actually helps it make sense, the influence of the temple in which God rests, his Shekinah will extend 
to Damascus. Mm. That would also be... Because um, it is interesting, though, as we read through these portions, that, um, I mean, this, I think, just just underscores the phenomenal amount of uh, prophetic spirit these guys had. Because as we're talking about these cities, these places, these kingdoms, these whatever else, they are still here. I mean, we're not having to scratch our heads going, where on the map is yeah, that? All but one. Oh, right. Which, but, which is where we're But, I mean, it's, it's phenomenal as you're going through them. It's like, oh, I know where that city is. That city's... In fact, some of these prophecies have not have clearly taken place because right. you go, huh. You know, like one of them we come across later, it's like Israel does actually own that city today. That's, that's right. And in some cases you can say, I've been there. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. All right. So I noticed, uh, I, 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 I kind of teed it up online with... Uh, with the uh, little word study there on uh, Masa, as well as a time reference thing, uh, in 9, 3, and 4, uh, Zechariah talks about Tyre. Mm-hmm. And the Lord will strip her of her possessions, strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. And that did happen. Nebuchadnezzar did do that, and it was not long after Zechariah said that. Um, but, and the reason I brought up my Ezekiel book, or Yechezkel, is in the 26th chapter of uh, Ezekiel, he says, It was in the 11th year, on the first of the month, that the word of Hashem came to be saying, Ben-Adam, because Tyre had said of Jerusalem, Hurrah! The gateway of the nations has been broken. It is directed toward me. The destruction will make me filled. Therefore, thus says my Lord Hashem Elohim, Behold, I oppose you, Tyre, and I shall bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves, and they shall destroy the walls of Tyre, break down her towers, and I shall scrape her earth from her and turn her into a bare rock, a spreading place for nets shall be, shall she be in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken the words of my Lord Hashem Elohim. And if you continue to read the chapter, you, you, you get the uh, promise uh, or guarantee, as it were, that it would never be rebuilt. And in 332, a man representing all of the world, since he had conquered all of the known world, or was in the process of doing so, wiped out Tyre completely, and didn't just strip her of her possessions, but made it to where, even today, it, it is not rebuilt. There is a city of Tyre, but it is not on the original place. They just named it that. In the following chaptering of Ezekiel, um, also to that same verse, and he will strike her wealth with the sea, that ver- uh, Ezekiel, the next chapter, 30, uh, 27, 34, and it says, Now you are shattered by the sea in the depths of the waters you wears, and all your company have gone down with you. Yeah. It, he, he makes it very explicit. It's done, yeah. So good, good parallel. But now we've got a, a timing marker, right? Yeah. It's it not just happened. nearby, but uh, also, uh, I mean, let's, let's remember it, and for anybody watching at home, um, by way of reminder, if we start at creation in that corner, uh, the first half of the first wall, we have um uh, oddness going on with Nephilim and weirdness and so forth and and a judgment if you will um, uh, but instant amongst that you do have Enoch at the beginning there 
in the middle, and then you get Noach in the corner, uh, the culmination of all the badness that's going on, and and um, and then in this corner we have Abraham, and in between, of course, we have the finishing of the ark, the Tower of Babel, uh, the the flood, and then the Tower of Babel, uh, and then here we have our patriarchs um, of blessed memory, and then we go into exile in Egypt. We get to the uh, the mountain. Uh, during the Exodus, we've got the book of Judges, and then we get to uh, the kings, and we begin with uh, uh, King Saul, and then King David in the corner, and then you you know what happens there with all of our prophets are on the first half of that fourth wall, and first the northern kingdom gets exiled, northern kingdoms, and then the uh, two southern kingdoms get exiled. Zechariah is right after they are given the opportunity to return. And then we have the book of Esther, and you've got Nehemiah and Ezra and all those kind of guys uh, there as well. But that middle of that wall is what kicks off what we call the second temple era. The first temple era is the first half of this wall. That's what we're studying. That's when he wrote this. Um, but many commentators would say that this Tyre incident is a second temple prophecy fulfillment. Right. I think that's true. Yeah. So the reason I bring that up is the second temple era, according to the chronologists, would say, ended at the next corner. You've got the Hasmoneans and you've got the rebellion, which we now mark with Hanukkah, right? Um, and pretty much you're in the corner now. And the priesthood is really ruling right. instead of the Davidic dynasty. A corrupt priesthood. Correct. And, and, uh, and of course Rome, or Edom, is now influencing who's going to be the high priest. You've got more than one high priest at a time, which is biblically impossible. But this kicks off then a different time era. So uh, the reason why I'm making a distinction here is when we speak of Yeshua... He was not Second Temple era. Even though he was in the Second Temple. The Second Temple era, if we're, you know, we're, we're trying to get it down to the Nats knees, really begins in that corner. And that corner would be what most Gentiles would call the year zero. Okay? So you're saying that the Second Temple era, era begins... Ends. Ends. Okay. It you're, starts you're, in the yeah, middle, right? There. Okay. So you get the first temple era, then you get the second temple gotcha. era, which has the the Zugot, right. the sure. Sanhedrin, because and all that. By the time Yeshua is on the scene, we're so he, quickly into the Talmud and the need well, to yeah, get it written. He, he dies about forty years before the temple's wiped out. Correct. And that whole now now forty years out of five hundred. Right. Right. So if he was born four before the common era. Right. Seven before the common era, even zero of the whatever, you know. I mean right. he his birth in my mind really kicks off the Talmudic era. That's what that would be called, the Talmudic era. Mm -hmm. And then the second half of that millennium would be the Gaonic era, right? Mm -hmm. Where we have the, the Gaonim, these these Gaons uh, that were Talmudic geniuses and teaching in Babylon and so forth. So keeping that in mind a lot of people aren't going to be quite as stiff as that. And they would say that, obviously, Yeshua was Second Temple era. I, I tend to disagree, and now you know why. In terms of the so, 
Tyre, second temple destruction. I don't, I, don't, I don't think we can go any further with that. It never got Talmudic because it was definitely before well, the Hasmonean Revolt. But I, what I, another thing I really like about that is, um, I mean, I don't know if the, how many of the secular scholars have even read Zechariah because it's, it's kind of an obscure book if you're not right. into the Bible. But um, Daniel is the same thing. Daniel lays that all of the different kingdoms, Babylon moving forward to sure. Rome. Yes. And he does such a brilliant job that most people place Daniel in the Second Temple period. Why? Because they can't believe he could have he, he did it so brilliantly. Well, That's right. Well, Zechariah does the same thing here because his prophecy about Tyre being wiped out is almost ironic because Tyre's already been wiped out. That's right. A hundred years earlier, when, Nebuchadnezzar... When the northern, when the northern uh, kingdoms were taken right after that. They, they knocked out Tyre then. So Zechariah is here prophesying about an event that will take place 200 years later with a different kingdom ruling the world right. under Alexander the Great. That's right. And yet he again nails it. And not only does he, is he so perfect in the, in the prophecy, but as you pointed out, um, and the history will back this up, that the, even though there is a modern city of Tyre, it's not in the same location. That's so right. essentially, yeah. it has truly never been rebuilt, which is, yeah. I mean, that doesn't happen really and with a lot of with, with anything besides biblical prophecy i mean that's just those types of things are well, it's, testaments it, to its authority it is or they're the the points that people want to skirt around so that they can deny it and one of the easiest ways to do that as you pointed out with daniel is to say daniel was written in 100 before the common era after all of it had happened he right. wrote it all down as history and made it sound like he wrote it down earlier yeah not the case well, right. I think another thing that, like I said, the, the irony is, of course, you've got situations like the fact that Tyre was never rebuilt. That, well, obviously, Zechariah is not writing the book now. Right. So at yeah. least he, yes. got, he, he had he to got have gotten that, that one right. He got that one right. <laughs> All right. The next thing I see in the, in the uh, next few verses here um, was... Well, God turns his anger towards another group. Yeah, well, hang on. I, I saw a parallel. If you look back in nine one. It, it had a it, it had almost a proverbial bent to it uh, proverbial as in I would have thought I'd read this in Proverbs the Lord has an eye on mankind you see that mm-hmm. and on all the tribes of Israel and I can remember my mother one of the uh, her most famous uh, solos she was a quite a quite a singer uh, blessed memory uh, was uh, his eye is on the sparrow I don't know if you know that song, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, she was she was great at it. Um, but it's that concept that you, you know, even in a few good men, right? You've got the guy in the stand. You know, yes, this soldier died, and God was watching. Yeah, okay, we get it. Everybody knows God is watching. His eye is on mankind. Well, now look down at verse eight. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. He's speaking of Israel. Why? For now I see with my own eyes. Once again, mentioning the eye or eyes of God. That's interesting. So I wanted to figure out then, we have a time reference in verse 8. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard. Well, when? Well, I think it goes back up to verse 5. Uh, when this king shall perish from Gaza, Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. 
A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. So whenever that king shall perish from Gaza appears to be when he will encamp at his house. So what do you think? Any ideas on when that is? What do you well, got? First off, or what do they have? What, um, do you mind if I quickly use your wall here as a as a pretend map to kind oh, of lay no, out where these things yeah. are located? Because we've got a lot of this way people on the screen can hopefully see. So basically, for those who have never been to the Middle East, or you both of you have, um, the Mediterranean Sea is like right in here. So we've got like Italy, a little boot comes down in here and whatnot, and this is this area. So Israel's a little tiny speck, essentially, a little line right here. Well, along the, the coast. Along the coast. Now, Tyre, which we're talking about getting destroyed, is just north of Israel, along with Sidon, which is also mentioned here. And there, what's called, um, today is called Babel, or Lebanon, um, which, which will then show up again later as well. We see Lebanon mentioned. Over to the north from, kind of the north uh, east from there is Damascus, in what is modern day Syria, um, which is all, again, directly north of Israel. They're all bordered to each other. So then um, coming down from that, the Sea of Galilee, got Jerusalem. Um, so that if you go directly out from Jerusalem or kind of to the south, um, you start getting to the coastal cities, which is where we have um, Ashdod, which is um, probably about an hour drive or so south of Tel Aviv in modern day. Um, Ashkelon is south of that. And then the, what we call today the Gaza Strip, um, which is where all the Palestinian crazies live, and that, um, that area is where you see a lot of these other references, because this whole coastal region was run by the Philistines back then. So what's really funny about this passage is it specifically highlights Ashdod and Ashkelon as being inhabited by somebody other than the Philistines. Well, the Philistines get wiped out a while ago, um, in terms of their kingdom anyway, but literally today, the people who live in Ashdod and Ashkelon, just as the sages' commentary points out, are Israelis. Right. Those are now Israeli cities in modern day. Um, and Gaza is... Um, the best way I can define the mess that has happened to Gaza is that there is a euphemism in Hebrew. Um, in Hebrew, uh, because based on the, the Yom Kippur... Um, atone, day of atonement ceremony at the end of the uh, ceremony you would take the goat and you would take it to the rock or whatever known as Azazel right. well in modern Hebrew there's a euphemism if you were as kind of like a like a nasty you know thing to say to someone instead of saying like go to hell as you would say in English they would say go to Azazel well a modern twist on that is because it's, it's, it's because the word for Gaza and Azazel are sound very similar in Hebrew it's Azazel and Aza because they don't say the G right. so, it's, so they, sometimes they will switch it so it's like go to Gaza so it's like that's how bad Gaza is um, <laughs> so when you read this passage and it's talking about the king of Gaza being wiped out and the Philistines losing all their strength and all these awful things that happened to this little coastal region down here in the south of what is the south of Israel, um, you can really see that played out today, and so it's really kind of it's kind of fascinating so, to me. So the, thank you. So from time from a timing perspective, when do you guys think this happened, or has this happened? I kind of think the thing about Zechariah, and I think this is worth mentioning again later because there's a couple of the things where I think this might be true. With most, with a lot well, most, a lot of prophecies in the Bible. There are like multiple layers of sure. fulfillment. 
And I think Zechariah is especially true of that. And the proof of that is the fact that the sages are all over the place on is this is this when the Hasmoneans took them over? Is this what Messiah is going to do at right. the end? Did this already happen in the right. past? I get that. I get it. Like I said, they're all over the map. I get that. When do you guys think this happened or has this happened? And I tell you why. When I follow this flow right after, for now I see with my own eyes, which implies, if you will, a personal visit. I come to Zechariah 9 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. Now, it could be, it could be that some other king of Israel happened to show up on a donkey. Somehow I feel like we but, have record of that. But historically, even the sages say never happened because kings would show up on a different beast. This demonstrates his humility. He would, he would have been on a war horse, some kind of stallion and all of that. Um, I, for those of you in Gastonia or Gaza and, and don't uh, realize where I'm going with this, this has always been a very clear... Uh, prophetic passage about Yeshua and his entrance from uh, where did he spend the night? Be- uh, Bethpage. Bethpage. Um, and riding into Jerusalem. And riding into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey or on the foal of a donkey as it says. Um, Which is what Malbim is- says that the righteousness of which this speaks is his own righteousness. Sanhedrin 98a uh, speaks of this time as well. Well, this particular... Um, that's one reason why I do feel like chapter 9 of Zechariah is a bit... Um, it's not necessarily in chronological order. I feel like things are getting moved around a lot. In fact, that passage on Gaza may even be one where... Um, I've heard some people describe... Sorry, uh, Precept Ministries talked about this idea where it's almost like the prophet is standing on a mountaintop and he sees what look like a long line of flat territory but it's really just the other tops of mountains kind of the idea sure. so um, where he's at he's seeing the destruction of the Philistines a king will perish from Gaza Ashkelon will not be inhabited because they're referencing earlier Ashkelon will see the destruction of Tyre is implied and fear so it's like the destruction of Tyre occurs Gaza which this is historically true is eventually obliterated as well um and, but then it's almost like there's a, an ellipsis where the prophecy goes like thousands of years into the future. Maybe. Only because it says here that, um, talking of the Philistines at the end of verse 7, he too will remain for our God. He will be like a master in Judah and Ekron will be like the Jebusite. The sages interpret that as saying that the Philistines turn to Hashem. Sure. I definitely don't think we can argue that that has happened. Right. At least not historically. Sure. So, so the way I, I try and picture it in my mind, rather than the mountaintops, because I remember that, is is more of, Johnny, on your way home, uh, on your way out to your car, you stop at the mailbox. And then um, as you're going around that bend, right off of 51, just as, you, as you're turning onto, onto the street that leads to your street, well, wait a second, I just jumped from the driveway <laughs> to Pineville. 
yeah. right? But it's still talking about the same. Right, right. right. It's, it's your path. journey. Yes. It's your route back, that kind of thing. I That's how I see this that kind makes of sense. stuff, right? Yeah. I'm talking about this. And, and oh, by the way, and, and Ashkan, speaking of those guys, not only are they going to see this, but I mean, they're, they're actually going to turn towards Hashem. I mean, it's, it's amazing, but it's true. But he never intends to mean that it's going to happen the next day. Right, exactly. So, so um, I guess the way my precept leader put it was, uh, it, it's like those one of those telescopes where you're on the, you know, when you're on the ship, and they're and they're all, and he would say, you're seeing the first one, and he just went, and is giving you a couple on the back end. Don't, don't, don't get dismayed about it. Now, I, I, I don't think we can know, but the first thing I thought about was. Uh, obviously, nine nine. I want to just you know take take some sure. discussion on to say, your king is coming to you, and that's future tense. Future tense in first temple, Beit Rishon era, to either the back end of second temple or the beginning of the Talmudic era, is future tense. That works. This clearly to me can reference Yeshua. Mm -hmm. The question I had was, is the king in verse 5 who perishes the same king? Um, it's an interesting thought. I hadn't, I hadn't considered that same... Um, I I'm here to give you interesting thoughts that you I, haven't considered. I don't, I don't know. I don't think that it is because I think that I do agree with the sages that the king that perishes in verse 5 is specifically a Philistine king because I, I, they it were seems all to pretty, be pretty consistent there. in Gaza not, and, and related to Gaza because it's all about their destruction. So that's the and context. Can we, and can we associate Yeshua with what wasn't even called Gaza back then? Not was really, because Gaza I don't area? think he even goes there his entire minute, his entire lifetime. He, he goes by it on was, his way into Egypt. He was associated with Galilee, certainly associated with Jerusalem, certainly associated with a whole bunch of towns up in the Galilee. Right. And and to your point, we've got, you know, uh, he went he through Samaria instead of going around. He goes to Sidon. Right, right. He went across the water and stuff like that, but I don't see anything all the way on the yeah. coast. No, so, um... But so there you're, is, not, you're not buying that. No, I'm not. All right, that's good. There is one really, really cool thing in the Hebrew of verse 9 that I had never seen before. It says, um, Behold, your king will come to you. Righteous and victorious is he. Victorious is a very odd translation there. Yeah. Because the that. word there is not th has nothing to do with victory. The word there is actually based on the root for Yeshua's name. Right. It's salvation. Which is which is why the English Standard put it that way, having salvation. Having salvation, because um, in in fact the um, it's the noshua no no sorry nosha the nosha mm -hmm. which is um, which is intriguing because it's um, according to the the sages commentary here. Um, they interpret, and, and this is in my Art Scroll edition, they interpret it as saying, as, as meaning he will be saved. Right. Speaking of the Messiah. Right, 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 yeah. Because he will be saved in battle, which right. is why they translate it as victorious in the English. Um, what's particularly interesting about that is, is it's almost like, if you, if you I mean, I don't, I, I don't know enough about the, the language to be able to tell you what um, person it's in, you know, is it reflexive, is right, it right, right, right. who's doing the action? Or who is it being done for? 
but it almost has a feel because it's almost like a future tense concept like he will be saved it's like I'm not saying it, it doesn't mean he, he, he will be Yeshua but it almost right. feels that right. way the way that it's written out yeah. well if you I mean the way the, the English standard put it having salvation is he that's just wooden and tough I could I could replace that as he is salvation he has salvation, you know? But it's, it's amazing to me and really interesting that that is one of the defining terms that's assigned him in this reference um, because well, if... if he, two, two things, right? He's got, he's got with three characteristics right. that are nailed here. Righteous, salvation, and humble. Right. And, uh, and of course, we, we see that... It's funny because... Um, when they do the the sages, to their credit, they recognize Messiah and where he's being used, and they don't run away from it when it's obvious. Right. So in this reference, they specifically this is talking about Messiah, and they tie the humble line back to Isaiah forty two, which is also quoted in the apostolic scriptures as referring to Yeshua in talking about he will not raise it raise his voice, he will not break a bruised reed. That right, shows up right. in the gospels because they're saying, who is this guy? And and they and that's specifically uh, a reference associated with him. It's one of the few times, well, not few times, but one of the handful of times where the Apostolic Scriptures actually quotes a passage as applying to Yeshua, as opposed to just kind of alludes to it, or right, says right, as it is right. written, and then kind of paraphrases. But right. they actually we're, we're quote not even, We're not even mentioning that it was written. Right, right. which we'll get another that's one of those good. in a minute. So that, I think that's really cool, that this verse, to me, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, if you believe in the historical accuracy of Yeshua. Right. It's really hard to ignore this passage. You, I, 100%, I'm with you. Yep. Uh, you know, I get it. It is really hard unless you put the blinders on. Yeah. And unfortunately, we've seen of late that those that get drawn to Chabad in an orthodox perspective come, are, are, are taught to come to the scriptures with a certain perspective. One of them is Shulchan Aruch is the uh, essence of how we keep our halakha. Secondly, the sages have done all the work of interpretation for us, and there is, it is considered inappropriate for men to sit around like we're doing now and come up with our own interpretation. That's, that's, that's a no-no. That's being a rebel. Of course... The sages did it, <laughs> and that's why we call them the sages. But nevertheless, I get it. There's just a different mindset. The the, uh, the, canon. the thing that 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 I love about this, as as you pointed out, with the sages not not walking away from messianic references, uh, although they do do some gymnastics, if it if it's been grabbed by the visible representation of the church. True. Right. In this one, and I want to quote, and I am I'm reading again, as I think a lot of us are, from the Art Scroll, uh, Later Prophets, the Twelve Prophets. This is the Milstein edition. This is the same one you got, right? I think mine's different. But, uh, you got the Reuben Prophets? Uh, Milstein. Yeah, you got Milstein? Yeah. No, yours is different. Yeah. Right? Because <clears throat> that's... Um, that's the Tanakh that, series. That, that's the Tanakh series. That's a two-volume. It is a two-volume. And okay. I just got the second volume coming tomorrow. Yeah. Anyway, here's what it says. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Upon seeing the following vision, Zechariah, Zechariah instructs Israel to shout for joy for their victorious king is coming before them. Interesting. If this does re, re, um, refer to Yeshua, his victoriousness was victory over death right. in his first king. advent. Right. And as his, and, as a king, yeah. will not be till his second. Which advent. I think it's to be honest with you, one reason why the concept the, here of um, the word Yeshua being there and not and not a typical or the words for salvation being there and not a typical war time war um, military war-like term deal. Yeah. is actually a big deal. Yeah, and because a big if it was a military term, I think we would all have to admit that Yeshua. Partly fulfilled this, but not all the way, because sure. he wasn't a military sure. victor when he came and, in. And in our, our recent studies of Messiah, have taught me to recognize he didn't do a lot of the stuff that the Scripture says a Messiah is going to do. Well, I'm, yeah, yeah, we can think about it in terms of Yeshua, but just think about it in terms of Israel's history. Like, how many other kings were on this side of the wall victorious? Well. Other than the Hasmoneans, which some of the commentators are going to jump on, right? Sure. It's, uh, you're not looking at too many. That's right. And how many <laughs> rode a donkey? Well, that's the funny exactly. part. That's no, that. one, no one acknowledges that any king ever did that's this. What, that's what, I remember I got a commentary one time from somebody. I can't remember. I think it was a Muslim friend of mine, you know, basically kind of dinging this. Like, sure. oh, come on. You, you, anybody can ride a donkey into Jerusalem. But it's like, yeah, but for some odd reason, only one person only one did. Guy did. I don't get that. And everybody wrote down that he did, and all kinds of people showed up. In fact, up. in in modern days, with an opportunity with a with a somewhat um, arrogant uh, European leader uh, entered Jerusalem in the early twentieth century, I think it was the um, uh, leader from Germany, something like that. Opportunity here, you know, I want to make a statement. They literally rebuilt the gate, what we now call Jaffa Gate in Jerusalem, was rebuilt to accommodate his car. Oh, you're kidding. So, so you enter Jerusalem in a jag or something right, yes, like that? Whatever was the 1920s, you know, whatever. So it's like, basically, with all of history, we got one guy that we know rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Yeah. Unbelievable. All right, so here's what it says. And one guy who modified Jerusalem because he was a donkey. <laughs> <laughs> here's what it says. Traditionally, again, I'm reading from a Jewish publication. Traditionally... See Sanhedrin 98a. This prophecy is describing the arrival of the Messianic king. In fact, Rashi maintains that it is impossible to explain this prophecy as referring to any other king, for we don't find any ruler of Israel during the Second Temple era that ruled from the sea to the end of the world. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, others interpret this prophecy as referring either to the Messiah, son of Joseph, or to Nehemiah, whom scripture calls a king in Judah, or to the Hasmonean leader Judah Maccabee, Abarbanel strongly rejects all of these interpretations. So I found, as I was reading through the, uh, the sages stuff, that Radak, uh, Radak uh, Rabbi uh, David uh, Kimchi, um, and I apologize to his, uh, to his uh, heirs if I'm saying that wrong, um, because there was a There was a, a play on his name, and the ch was probably 
in order for the play and the name to be. So it's probably Kim Ki or something. Anyway, uh, Radak is always focusing on the Messiah. Rashi is many times in there. Uh, Abarbanel just doesn't buy into this this crap that it was these other people there and, and just kind of really dings them good. So, um, behold, your king will come to you, your true king, Abarbanel says. A scion of the house of King David will come to you, not a descendant of Aaron the Cohen, referring to the Hasmoneans, nor a descendant of any other family. That's the, that's the Jewish sages saying this. So, um, pretty cool, I'd say. I agree. I think. So we're 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 seeing a reference there, evidently to Yeshua, um, and I like it. So now we move through it to verse ten, and I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. Then he shall speak peace to the nations. Radak again says, that's King Messiah. His rule shall be from sea to sea. And that's why. Nobody's done that. So he's saying Messiah once again, and he references Micah 5.9. What do you guys think of, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit? And who do you think is speaking? Um, it seems to me the um, I mean the stages say this is God yeah and, uh, and I, I think I think I, I could work on that I think it makes a lot of sense for it to yeah. be Hashem speaking um, also the phrase um, the waterless pit is a um, definitely seems to be something of a I mean it's obviously a metaphor sure um, they compare it to the pit that Joseph was thrown into right. um, and linking it with things like exile um, and and other types of, of connections. They specifically say that the blood of your covenant was referencing circumcision, um, which we know from the other tradition that's held about the first exodus, um, exodus from Egypt, that one of the only things, basically, that they, that they were able to stick with more or less was circumcision at the end of course when they had the the, the Pesach they, they circumcise everyone at that point definitely is circumcised before the Pesach so they, they tie that in as one of the, the few merits in Israel's favor when the exodus happens so here again same thing here the sages go out of their way to point out that oddly enough that's like the one mitzvah Jewish people have kept all over the world for centuries okay I have some thoughts on the pit? Yeah. Good. And what do you think that pit is? I don't, I don't know that, that any of this is right, but I'm just kind of throwing some ideas out. Um, I, it, it could be just a uh, roundabout um, reference to Gehenna, like a physical Gehenna. Yeah. But could it also um, reference just like a... Um, a land without like a like existence without Hashem the idea that um, that he is like the um, I just think like, of uh, like Psalm like 63 when David is land yeah without the exactly yeah. um, that's the that, that's a, a great amazing Nagoon and it's like my soul 
thirsts yeah, for you in a dry and weary land, in a land without water. Yeah. Okay, so it's so Hashem is this source of water. He, I mean, it's like I, I want you, Hashem, because okay, just as my body is desiring water, it, earlier it's in that verse it says my soul thirsts for you. So there's an immediate connection right there, and that's you know that's, that's me, what you're seeing. Okay. Yeah. Well, here's let me give you a couple things that I saw. Uh, just uh, I'm I'm going to take from verse ten and and bring it down to the end of the chapter. All right. So what is it? Works. Six verses, right? So I see I, I do a couple things I notice. First off, who is it that's going to speak to the nations? Who is it that rules from sea to sea in verse ten? Seems to be Messiah. Messiah, King Messiah, according to Radak, Radak, Radak. Okay. I get that. I agree. Who is it that will set the prisoners free from the waterless pit, though? We think it's God. We Apparently it's Hashem. Well, okay. the pronoun changes. The, it the, does. The I and the you. I get it. Okay. So, so, so it doesn't, it's not, it makes sense. Right? Yeah, so, so far, then, so good. Right? So now I move down and I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made a front of this. I will stir you up. Yada, 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 I will do this. When I do this, now who's that? That same I. That must be Hashem. Then we dump it to 14. Then the Lord will appear over them. Hmm. But, well, hang on. Okay. So then the Lord will appear over them. And a parallel in the next verse. The Lord of hosts will protect them. And I see perhaps the Lord of hosts being the same as the Lord. The Lord, verse 1, had his eye on mankind. Now I see with my own eyes, he says in verse 8, the Lord will appear, again another eyeball kind of thing, over them in verse 14. And the Lord of hosts will protect them in verse 15. On that day, verse 16, the Lord, their God, will save them. But that salvation was already discussed when the king came, who is, was, and had salvation, and I submit that in the first 16 verses, in fact, in chapter 9, I see the Lord providing the salvation, doing the looking, and being the king. I don't, disagree, I don't disagree with that, because there are frequent, frequently in Exodus, I know, um, Hashem speaks of himself in the third person. Yeah. Yeah, I like, went with it, you. I, I, I was, was the there, one. Or the Lord did this. Yeah. And it's like, well, it's God speaking. Yeah. It's like, well, okay. So he's speaking about himself in what we would refer to as the third person. Exactly. So it's not uncommon. And, and that makes sense. I, I agree. So I, I saw you know, just a, a beautiful thing there. Uh, even down to, if you'll bear me one more, uh, one more deal. In verse 14, it says, Then the Lord will appear over them. And his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the shofar. And I thought immediately, if you take what you just read there, that the Lord is appearing over them. You thought me, about the mountain? No. No. I thought about, and the Lord will descend oh, yeah. with a shout. And with the, the trumpet, trumpet blast, yeah. right? But it harkens back. Thessalonians 
four, right? Sixteen through eighteen. Sure, that and makes sense. absolutely back to that. He's the over is, that's there. That's the very same engine. Image right. There. So, uh, sound of the trumpet, March fourth, in the whirlwinds of the south, and you've got all of the blowing winds and all that. I just, to me, this just fit together so beautifully. To without trying to stretch it or. Or get weird. Well, this language here, this they will drink and be boisterous as, as, as from wine. Uh, this is verse, uh, latter yeah, half of 15. verse 15. Yeah. And they will be filled up like a bowl in like the corners of the altar. I mean, to me, that sounds like revelation language there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and the Lord of hosts will protect them. They shall devour, tread down the slingstones, and so forth. It sounds like they're fighting back, and we've got some kind of war with the king at the head. And they're winning, which we expect when King Messiah comes, because that's the bottom line, right? So anyway, there you go. Cool. All right. Anything else there before we go on to chapter 10? 10. Uh, I think it's one of the coolest parts about reading the apostolic scriptures with a Hebrew mindset and trying to bring it together is that you realize that the it's funny because people accuse the writers of the Apostolic Scriptures of forcing stuff they're calling him from Nazareth as it says doesn't even say that you know not realizing it's a play on words right. um, can't you or, tell it's a joke you know how do you yeah exactly and it's like oh well it's so convenient that not one of his bones is broken you know and then they pulled it out of Exodus as though that was supposed to say something you know whatever but they, can anything good come from that <laughs> but the funny part is that the, actually the apostolic writers are so in tune with their scriptures and, all, and Yeshua is so in tune with the scriptures that some of the things that happen or some of the quotes Yeshua says are not um, are not explicit prophetic fulfillments. They don't go out of their way to point it out. It's like, well, of course that happened, duh. So yeah. that's what happens here, and I think it's cool because it doesn't. Again, it doesn't come off like the apostles are forcing it. I really think you really can see um, the influence of God's Spirit in the apostolic scriptures because you see these things, these these patterns, these yeah. these things. Kind of, so in and, chapter and, ten, and since they knew the scriptures so well, they're like. Well, hang on. I didn't we read that last week? Well, what just happened? You know. So that, in that's this so cool. this chapter, right, um, we uh, there's a great one that shows up at the beginning of chapter ten. God um, is upset with the fake leadership yes. of Israel, um, and then in verse three, I'm sorry, in the second half of verse two, he's talking with the people. Mm-hmm. He said, "Therefore, they have wandered off like sheep; they are humbled, for there is no shepherd." Well, this is almost an exact paraphrase of uh, Matthew chapter 9 in verse 36. Yeshua's out healing all the people. And then it says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. But the amazing thing is, he doesn't make the sheep analogy when he talks to his disciples. The next verse says, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. What's funny is, that's reversed from Zechariah, because chapter, verse 2 is about sheep, but verse 1 says, request rain of Hashem in the season of the late rains. 
of Hashem who makes rain clouds, and he will provide them a shower of rain for each person herbage in the field. So the imagery of produce in the field brought by God and sheep without a shepherd is in both passages, but it's flipped. And it's, it's alluded to so subtly, you'd really have to know your Bible to realize it was even being referenced. Where are you at? Matthew 9? Uh, yeah, Matthew 9. It's one of the, one of the most, there's, it shows up several places, but that's one of them. Yeah. We've also got it in, uh, I'm sure it's Shepherd thing as well. is Luke. Yeah. Thing. Good, Matthew 9. I like it. I like it. So, um, we had a couple of references here. It would be great if we had the reference to the donkey coming into Jerusalem. Can somebody find that real quick so we can just add that to the notes? Sure. Back in Zechariah 9 9. If we could just pull it, think if it's, we get as much as we can from Matthew, that would be great. That one, I think. But I think it's in. It maybe, I know it's in Luke. I think it might be yeah. in Matthew, too. Um, anyway, so yeah, that was one of the things that stood out to me. Also interesting, um, in, this, in this passage, uh, we get an intriguing reference to a bunch of different um, building parts. Uh, verse 4 of Zechariah 10 oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. says... Um, oh, this is great, yeah. It's very interesting because it says, From themselves, and the, and the sages say this refers to Israel, will come forth the cornerstone. But what's odd is that the cornerstone isn't pluralized there. So in Hebrew, it literally says, from them, mimenu, pina, a cornerstone. I, I did a massive study of mimena to try and figure out, was it always them, or plural, or was it sometimes singular? And everywhere that I read, I mean, we're talking hundreds. It was all singular. Very rarely. Wait, me may not, me may knew. Me, this is new. Me may knew. Okay. I, I rarely ran into a plural one, and I just couldn't figure out, okay, is that just because they changed it for context? But the English standard puts every one of those in the singular. From mm. him shall come the cornerstone. From him the tent peg. From him the battle bow. From him every ruler all of them together. Which is pretty cool. They just threw this one under the bus, the sages did, and just started out by going, this is obviously a metaphor. Although it's interesting because the, even in spite of that, they specifically say the cornerstone references the king. Um, right. Uh, David McDonald, by the way, has told us that it is uh, Matthew 21 with the donkey. Yeah, verses 4 through 6 is... Um, References the Zechariah passage, Matthew, Matthew twenty-one. Oops. Um, yeah, no, I, I think this is a very interesting one. Um, the thank you, David. They um, it definitely the, the cornerstone reference here just oh, goes yeah. right back to David. Um, they have despised the cornerstone mm -hmm. um, because, and it's interesting to me again that we 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 see this the sages. Are not, regardless of what they want to say about Messiah, in this point, they 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 know that culturally it makes sense to consider the cornerstone to be the king, which um, so again that goes back again. I feel like to all those references about the cornerstone and Messiah and Yeshua. Yeah, absolutely. We're we're we're, we're we are the the illusion, and I think this is this is why that that context helps. 
the illusion that the Hebrew writers of the apostolic scriptures are getting at is he is the king. He is the unique one. He is not just a prophet, not just a priest, not just, you know, he is king. Yep. And that's a big deal. That's something they're emphasizing. It is a big deal. That's good. Um, interesting, just from a, uh, an engineering perspective, um, if we are, when we just got finished talking about the king, Messiah, being juxtaposed or equated with Hashem himself, mm-hmm. Hashem potentially being that king, Messiah, um, the cornerstone of a building, the cornerstone is the only stone that you can see from two sides. Mm-hmm. It's kind of fun. It is kind of fun. So I highlighted that uh, just as we're going along the same thing with the king thing there, in verse 5, the Lord is with them. In verse 6, I am the Lord their God and will answer them. Um, verse 6, Radak says is definitely messianic times. And, I mean, the whole idea, as you just pointed out, is it's the king, Messiah, that will be with them. But now it's been turned into, well, the Lord will be with them. The Lord, their God, will answer them. So, I love this. I have a whistle to them. Yeah. I have redeemed them. Now, that's that's the Lord saying that. I have redeemed them, and yet it's King Messiah who is going to redeem them. That's good. In verse 10, it reminded me of the uh, Pesach with the four I wills. I will bring them home. I will gather them in. I will bring them to the land. Very cool. There's your reference to Lebanon. Yeah, um, it says there will not be enough room for them. Not, again, I want to be careful about saying about prophetic things happening in our days. I think sometimes people get over overwhelmed by that, a little overly excited. But it is humorous that there is an apartment crisis in Israel. Um, there are two references in the prophets to there not being enough places for people to live in Israel. There'll be too many people for territory they have. Wow. The irony is there's lots of un, unused land in Israel, yeah. but the cities are really crowded. And so the apartments are expensive, and so that's creating something of a housing crisis. Not that there's not enough houses, but that it's too expensive Close to live there. Fortune, yeah. So it's just humorous to me that we see, like, at least an illusion, if not the actual fulfillment, an illusion to this fulfillment. And again, as I go, I want to go back to our, you know, our, our, our pagan friends who, who try to ridicule our scriptures and try to assume that none of them is real. It's like, you know, even if it's not exactly the full extent of what's going on, the fact that we're even talking about it 2,000, 2,500 years later. That's right. I mean, this, this was prophesied before the middle of that wall, and we're at this corner yeah, over here. Yeah, there's too much correlation for it to have been made up and to be coincidence. It's just, it's not unless you got the blinders on and you just don't want to, like you said, accept the historicity. Forget scriptural basis, <laughs> inspiration, or anything else. Mm-hmm. Just the historical record. Incredible. All right. Now, I circled verse 8, and I don't know why. Okay. Um. But the gathering in may be the key. Um, you know, you see the old westerns, and the, the guy's got to gather in all the horses or all the cattle or anything, and you're always hearing a whistle. And they're calling them all in to bring them into the pen, and the sheepfold or whatever it may be. Um, this is... 
This is interesting because if this is the the gathering of the elect from the four corners of his people, from the four corners, as we pray every single day, if that's the case, and we all believe that that will happen when, when King Messiah comes, and how do you explain the second half of that verse says, I have redeemed them, past tense. Hmm. That's a good point. I was thinking about that same thing. To me, the redemption happens before the gathering. Right. That's cool. So, uh, I would say the redemption happened when the king rode in on the donkey a chapter earlier, and the gathering and coming to to the land, so there's not enough room and so forth, happens at this corner. That's cool. All right. Past tense, good. I got a uh, thanks to uh, Rebecca Frank. Um, she gave me uh, a, a hint to get a product called note shelf and you can actually take a PDF oh, that's cool. and mark it up that's very cool so all I did was go into accordance highlighted I, I said um, show me Zechariah chapters 9 to 11 and now I've got a window in accordance that only shows that I can't scroll past it or before it that's your whole document <clears throat> that's the whole document so I hit command A selected it all Cut paste. Pasted it into Word. Got the font size I wanted. Said turn this into a PDF. Brought it in here. And now I can write on it as if I were... And I can print it. It prints in colors and print, prints this whole thing just like this. It's astonishing. That's cool. Yeah. It's like a $9 app. It's the most expensive app I ever bought. All right. So, and that explains uh, if you've been watching why he's been writing on his iPad. That's exactly right, yes. Um, I don't understand verse 11 in a context of what we just said unless it's it has to do with with when he comes well the C first off I think it's something that is lost a lot in English translation um, water yeah the scary stuff I is, know because we we, 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 learned that. we studied the Galilee but then they also it. cite here the sages point out that the waters is oftentimes referencing to the nations and in messianic language the crossing of the Red Sea in the first exodus Parallels at least the imagery used for the final redemption. Okay. So we have sure. um, the, the destruction of Leviathan, which is a sea monster, right. um, and the uh, and so it, it also occurring at kind of like a final redemption kind of concept. So you've got like this water imagery going on already. Um, there may be also be another reference to something like that. And then so the sages here are saying that the waters reference the nations. So it, they highlight Assyria and Egypt because they're like the, you know, the old school enemies, so to speak, of Israel. But it's talking about the global community as a whole, all the heathen nations turned against Israel, that God is going to wipe them out um, uh, and, and defeat them. Okay, that works. Um, verse 12, uh, he will make them strong. The king will make them strong in the Lord. Yeah, that's funny. And they shall walk in his name. I immediately thought, and he returns, the king Messiah returns on a white stallion 
and on his thigh is written a, a name which no one knows but himself, but they shall walk in his name. Hmm. Not bad. I jumped. Um, I jumped down to verse four at this point. Oh, I do want to say something real quick there. Um, chapter eleven talked about chronology getting all confused. The sages say that the "Open your doors, O Lebanon" is actually a reference to the temple and not the country of Lebanon. Um, Israel is oftentimes compared to trees. Lebanon is known for trees. Yeah. So the, and the second temple was made second temple the cedars of Lebanon. Well, yeah. the first temple was, and the second temple may have been also I'm not sure, but <laughs> the second temple. Um, it, they, there's a tradition in the, in the Talmud that says that I think it's the Talmud that says that the um, the doors of the temple wouldn't stay shut; they would just like randomly fly open. Right. And so the referencing here is they're saying that's what ties this into that, and says that the the chapter eleven is a lot about the destruction of the temple, which is important time frame to remember because of a really cool reference that we'll get to in a few verses. Okay, so. You're putting 11, 1, 2, 3, okay, and uh, Second Temple, end of Second Temple. Chapter 11 in general, most of it just seems, to, the, the sages seem to tie it into the end of the Second Temple. Um, they do, they do, and I, and I actually wrote uh, 7 through 12, 30 of the Common Era, when the Master is killed, with a big question mark. Because you, you're destroying, you know, right. and, and all that, and the 30 pieces of silver, I mean... No, that yeah, one that's is as bad as the that's donkey, man. even cooler. <laughs> I, I wanted to get to that one because right, that was so one of my favorites. We'll hold on that one. So, uh, what I highlighted from verse 4 on was everything about the flock and the shepherd, right? Become shepherd of the flock. Okay. Is that Magdalena? Well, the, this, these Become are the. Become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Right. Our, well, yeah. are the one. Is, is the, the, the people doomed to slaughter? The generation? that killed Messiah, that rejected the redemption, could be. I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land, could be. So I could, I'm putting it there as well. But then, who is Zechariah talking about? Himself? Couldn't be. So I, verse 7, became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to, the, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. So... <clears throat> if that's if that's King Messiah at this what point. What translation is that? This is uh, English standard. So I became shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staves, one I named Favor and the other I named Union. And I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed the three shepherds. But I became impatient with them and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die? Let it die, I think of Yeshua. What is to be destroyed? Let it be destroyed, I think of the temple. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another, and I think of the final Jewish rebellion in 66 and 132 and so on. And I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day. And the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. I think the sheep traders are the scribes and Pharisees and priests that are watching him at the cross, wagging their heads at him, knowing full well it was of the Lord, and that the sheep traders are the ones that are slaughtering the flock. 
Right, yeah, I think there definitely seems to be a lot of, there's a, there's a couple of different pictures there. One, one is um, very, very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, a, a lecherous non uh, leadership. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and really, that's, that's totally accurate to that time period because the Pharisees get, get dinged a lot, but we fail to remember that the Pharisees were the populists. They were the ones who were of the normal people. They were not the the the, right. the, Everybody the, the priest system, the priest system which had been um, going back as we had mentioned, the Maccabees take over, they kick out all the bad Greeks, yeah, they the reinstitute Judaism for those in Gastonia and the Gaza. Um, the the Maccabees, Judah Maccabee was the son of Zechariah Maccabee. Zechariah. Right? Uh, uh, Who's the dad? Matisyahu. Matisyahu. Or Mattathias, Mattathias, sorry. Mattathias, uh, right. Thank you. He was a priest. Yes, so they had Levi Levites. He was a priest, and he would not sacrifice in Modin. Right. Kill the thing, and now we've got so they had the revolt, going on our and party. they win. But they're priests. But what, we, what, we, what most people don't know is that within, like, what, 50 years after they, they took back everything from the Greeks, they were still having issues. So, Internal issues, well, and Rome had to step in. So they, they befriended Rome... A big mistake to try and help them deal with their problems. Well, the Romans eventually got in, and they took everything over, put in their put in Herod and whatever else, kind of set exactly. up their own system, so to speak. So the, the the priesthood, which had been the leadership pre-Rome and was still sort of the leadership with Rome, has been corrupted by Rome. So well, the, well, these I, are no longer the. I would just even well, go before that. I mean, from the Hasmoneans, they set up their own king. And they minted their own coins. So you've got a king who is now a priest. He is not of, of the tribe of, of David and of Judah, right? He's not of the lineage of David. And you have a priest that is a king. And they put the king there themselves before Rome came in. So they were self-corrupted. Right. But because they were self-corrupted and started killing one another and assassinating one another, they reached out. To, one of them reached out to Rome. And that's how Rome got involved, took over, and then started selling right. the priesthood and so, putting their own king in place. So when we read the, these passages, the sages interpret these as talking about the heathen nations uh, buying and selling the, the Jews right. post, the, post right. the Second Revolt um, and not caring about them. But it does remind me a lot of that time period in terms of the, the unfortunate thing of the Jewish leadership, which is why when the Sanhedrin condemns Yeshua to die... It specifically says in one of the Gospels that the Pharisees were not a part of that. Right. So it was only the hyper-corrupted right. priesthood, the priesthood that and was really I calling the, the shots I think there. the priesthood and, and, and the, as, you, as you pointed out, the, the leadership of Israel are these sheep traders and are the problem. I, I don't read a whole lot about Jews being sold into slavery in that period nearly as much as I do in that period. This is when, in the Rishonim area era, we've got whole whole cities being held captive, and you know they're, they've got to get a ransom to get our three rabbis off a ship somewhere, you know, right. stuff like that. One other one other interesting reference here that I think it deserves just to be mentioned quickly. Verse four, you had quoted, um, says the flock meant to be slain, and then verse five says they are not uh, whom their buyers slay and they are not guilty and those who sell them say blessed be Adonai now I'm rich 
Now, what's interesting about that is the sages say that the you know the pagan nations will actually think they're doing God a service by killing the Jews yeah. or selling them. Yeah, that's um, weird. But what's funny about that is Yeshua actually prophesies about this specifically, talking about his own followers, because he says that those who slay you will think that they are doing, doing God's work. The Lord's name, yeah. And and Shaul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, as Christians call him today, is actually one of those characters who's doing it thinking this is God's work, right. and it's not. But what's interesting well, is so when you see the flock meant to be slain, I'm also thinking of Romans when Paul references um, the believers who are being persecuted, references them as, as, a, as, um, as people being slaughtered. I mean, he uses that kind of that, that cattle and that, uh, yeah. language yeah. in Romans chapter 8 in saying, like, we are being sl- killed all day long. All day long, right. As a so, livestock. Yeah, so it's like you get this. So there's, there's another perspective possibly to look at this. Good, yeah. Is that it, it's not just um, the people of Israel in a general sense, but it's also um, a specific section of them. Or it could be both, that you sort of see almost like the smaller group is given that persecution and then it expands to the, the nation as a whole later on. But anyway, I think that's really interesting. And again, it ties it all back into the same time period. So I really, really, that was something else there. I really want to go to the 30 silver coins. All right, we're almost there. We've got one more, one more question. Okay. And that's verse 8. I actually have... Um, Three shepherds? Yeah, Johnny, I'm on, um, I'm on 459 in this book. Come with you. Um, <clears throat> first, the sages in this, uh, in this uh, what do you call this? Uh, commentary, uh, try to figure out who are these sticks. Mm-hmm. And uh, Noam and Hobalim are the two Hebrew names instead of Faber and Union. What do you got in your English translations? It was uh, Faber and Union. Right? Faber and Union, yeah. Um, Rashi says the uh, first one, Faber, is the kingdom of Israel, and uh, Union is the kingdom of Judah. Radak says God's rule th- through peace is the first one, and God's rule with destruction is the second one. And that is, depending on how the people act, if you are obedient, it's going back to Deuteronomy, right? If you obey me, everything's going to go great. We'll be at peace with one another. Groovy times. But if you don't obey me, I will discipline you. Um, Abarbanel says that it's the Hasmoneans. Judah, Simeon, and Jonathan are the favor. And the union are the later Hasmonean rulers. Uh, Ibn Ezra says it's Zerubbabel and Nehemiah but he had been drinking that day Um, the Talmud says it's the Torah scholars of the land of Israel are favor and the Torah scholars of Babylonia are union of course it does does. so all of that to to kind of prep for the very next verse after the sticks verse 8 in one month I destroyed the three shepherds if the eye is either God, Hashem himself, or King Messiah, or both. Who in the world are they talking about? So I don't really want to talk about what the sages say, because I'm just going to read you what the sages say. Rashi says it's King Jehoram, King Ahaziah, the descendants of King Ahaziah. Those are the three. Radak says it's the three sons of King Josiah. Notice that all these guys are 
right around the time of Zechariah. They're contemporaries. Ibn Ezra says, the Kohen Gadol, the Kohen of battle, the assistant Kohen Gadol, but he wasn't sure, so he said, oh, it could also have been the prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. A Barbanel, uh, Barbanel says it was Judah, Simeon, and Jonathan, the Hasmoneans. I like that one the best. Only but how, how did the king, how did King Messiah kill them? Unless he killed them in his death, in well, his victory. Well, no, no, not necessarily King Messiah. It could be referencing God uh, in the past tense here, because that's before Messiah there. But it says they led the nation for a total of 30 years, which Barbanel alludes to as, as being like a month right, time. Right, Which is kind of, that's at least interesting, because no one else references the month. I mean, I don't even know what, what right. you're talking and about. Right, and that's what I'm trying to figure that out. Now, if, if we look at, potentially, he was 30 years old. Mm-hmm. 30 years, 30 days. I can work with that, right? For, for the king. Um, Malbim has Cyrus, Artahashta, which I think is a Hazuaris, and Darius. The Talmud in Ta'anit 9a says that three shepherds are Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Mm-hmm. So they're all over the map. Nobody knows. To your point, I didn't read anybody anywhere in any reference I got that mentioned the 30 days. But just with what we know, and just with what we've been talking about, if it is King Messiah, because this is before, right? This is, this is, I became the shepherd of the flock. If that's Messiah becoming the shepherd of the flock formally in order to die for his sheep, what three shepherds are we talking about? Unless it's specific players at that time. Unnamed party. Well, maybe they were named. Maybe we read about um, the high priest and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, and uh, who's the other dude? The older guy, the father? Ananias. Ananias. Annas, I'm sorry. Annas, right? So Annas and uh, Caiaphas. And it's only two. I know. See, so I. Because you start talking like leadership, and yeah, I mean, you've got you've got Herod, you've got Pilate, you've got Caiaphas, you have Ananias, Annas. Excuse me, he's Annas. So maybe if you just count the two Roman rulers that you just mentioned, because they were different areas, and the high priest, since it's really only supposed to be one, could be. I would be particularly curious because I haven't researched this and I don't know the answer to this question. If in the time period from the end of Messiah's life up until the destruction of the temple, which is a little over 30 years. Yeah, it's just shy of 40. um, uh, So it doesn't really quite fit into the one-month analogy, so to speak. But there may be a month, a 30-year stretch in there where this would be true. If there were how many leaders or high priests were around during that during that time yeah. frame because it's interesting that when we when you read when you think about the, you're talking about the beginning of the Talmudic era okay up through the Zugot we've got Hillel and Shammai are like the pinnacles of the Zugot right at the end that's the last ones yeah and then there's like a uh, I wouldn't say a, a dearth but it definitely seems to be almost kind of like a little like a 
kind of calmness in terms of the number of like superhero sages for a little while there. Sure, sure. Until you get your start to get some Talmudic stuff going on. Right. No, I agree. Um, I have studied that period of time, and I know that Annas was constantly working behind the scenes to make sure his family members were always high priest. And Caiaphas, and then his, then uh, Annas's son, that was his son-in-law, then his son got in, and then Annas was in for a little bit again. I mean, it was all in their family. And I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if you only had maybe three guys through that whole deal. That'd just be interesting. That would be cool. I'm going to check that, because yeah, it's been too long to remember. All right, anything else there? I just love the fact that the sheep traders were watching him. Yeah, I mean, it's another reference to eyeballs, which seems to be a lot of in this uh, in this deal here. All right, Josh. Then the I said to them, "If it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them." And they weighed out my wages: thirty pieces of silver. Okay, so thirty pieces of silver is a really weird reference, and it has to be. To be honest with you, it's one of those things that's just kind of like. What are we even talking about? But this particular passage is one of those cases where um, I really believe that the the uh, apostolic writers are tying in. They're t- they're doing it to their credit so subtly. And so in Matthew twenty six, um, verse fifteen, we got Judas going to the chief yeah. priests. Yeah. Remember, these chief priests are the ones who've been kind of linking to the bad shepherds, right? Uh, no. Uh... The sheep traders. Right, yeah, that, that group. So he, he comes to them and he says, what are you willing to give me to betray him, talking of Yeshua, to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. Now, what's especially stunning about this particular reference is that that's not the end of the prophecy. That would be cool enough to go, ah, oh, 30 pieces 30 of silver. 30. Yeah. Talking about a price for him, which we would, which I think... If you think about it, give me my fee, in, in my thought, is, is my payment. But you could almost, I mean, almost kind of like, is it the price for him or the price to him? You know what I'm saying? Right. So, um, it, Come on, you've got two more. the Let's next go. verse yeah. says, Adonai said to me, throw it to the treasurer of the precious stronghold. This is, this is my uh, translation here. Yeah. Which, is, which the sages say is the treasurer of the temple, right. which I have divested from them. So I took the 30 silver coins and I threw it into the temple of Hashem to the treasure. Matthew 27, one chapter later, verse 3, Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. Now, what's really amazing is, again, I, I have to emphasize here, it doesn't, it doesn't end there. Because right. where is he? He's in the temple. The temple. The next verse. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and Here's said... number three. He's stepping up to the bat. Number one was the, was the, the silver. 30. Two, throw the silver into the, into the temple. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury. Where were they going? They were going to the temple treasury, which is what we've been talking about right, this whole right, time. Right. So now again, number three, come on, come on, come on. Since it is the price of blood, and they conferred together and bought the potter's field potter's as a burial place That's right there too. for strangers. Because the translation that they give is weird in my uh, Mine's art scroll. But in another English translation, 
they they Zachari- the Zechariah references they don't call it the precious stronghold, right? It's translated what's the exact how do you how does yours read? Hang on, I'm gonna... This is uh, Zechariah 11, verse 13, I believe. Yeah. In uh, I've got the NESB here. Okay, so I've got it here. Um, what verse? It's verse um, uh, 13. 13. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the, the potter. The potter. The lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And they buy the potter's field. So what's amazing here is that you get the potter language, but the word for potter is what my translation is translated as treasurer. Mm -hmm. They're almost interchanging them, which is almost hilarious because it's exactly what happens. He throws the money in the temple and they go, we can't put it in the treasury, so they buy the potter's field. I mean, it's almost like you can't make this up. That's exactly right. So, I mean, just here in these three chapters, I mean, there's so many allusions that you're not stretching. Right. Right? So, So what happens? In my mind, what happens is the the folks that are predisposed to deny Yeshua were predisposed against the visible representation of the church, put the blinders on, and don't want to to look at it, to even have a, a conversation about it. When you've got naysayers pagans discrediting the scriptures as we started our discussion with tonight they want to say well it was written later and because it was written later it's so accurate no big deal well it's the same thing here they'll they'll accuse the apostolic writers of fabricating a story none of this ever happened did Yeshua ever really live we don't know and if he did, he's dead, but we won't talk about the body. But they fabricate this whole story to match up so perfectly, it's too perfect. Right, and again, That's the problem. this particular one, the reason why I love this particular prophecy is because the apostolic writers, they don't, they don't push it. I mean, in my mind, if I was making something up and I wanted to make a point, especially in an era of... Of, of Homer when people are you know mythology is, is almost commonplace right right I would have like underlined this four or five times oh, as, yeah. it, as it says in da 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 I give you every reference you needed buddy but instead they 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 allude to it so subtly and it's even to the point of like plays on words because like we just said yeah, the word yeah. for potter well, can also be treasurer if but you that's did, a hilarious yeah, juxtaposition and if you didn't have the little footnotes and cross references in your study bible you'd never know sure. right so I think that as we've been I think that it's really fascinating that as we talk about the two oracles of Zechariah this week and next um, as we get dig into next week of course it will be uh, very um, future tense yeah Next, um, next week's probably not going to have uh, quite as much, not as much application to past. So what's interesting is I almost feel like, in a weird way, you could say that the that a large chunk of the first oracle of Zechariah in referencing the Messiah is about his first coming. 
I, I there's a lot of pieces that line up with that. I, I do think maybe not entirely. I, I, I'd like to say it a different way. I agree with you, but I'd like to say it a different way. I like to say it this way. In this prophecy of future times that deal with the Messiah and the Messianic age, there are a lot of references to King Messiah's first coming. There we go. Not that he fulfilled all of the ones who were listed, because that's the that's the big thing. Is is that I can cr- right? I agree with that. It wow. But, so, it, but I think it's cool to me that as we're talking about two oracles, the only reason why I highlighted that is that it's almost like there's a there's more emphasis on the first coming in the first oracle and more emphasis on the second coming agreed. in the second oracle. So it's yeah. almost as though Zechariah is seeing it distinctly. Like, here's part A, here's part B. Now, part A is a little, a little muddled. There's some other pieces that we haven't had happen yet. Sure. But it's just intriguing to me that there's so much of a focus here that you don't really get over here. Exactly. And again, it could be he's seeing a first coming and there's just natural discussion down... Right. Right? Just like I did with Johnny in the ride home. Right. It, so it, it's, some of it's going to spill out. Right. But even the fact that there's two oracles... Right. Is... That, exactly. You know, why, why didn't we just have one oracle? Uh, right. Maybe we needed two distinct oracles so we would understand two distinct advents. Ah, could I, that's, be. That's what. Yeah. So possible. I, so. Anyway, I, the most encouraging thing, though, I think, is if you, as we've as we've been digging through Zechariah, is to see that um, for those who haven't read the Apostolic Scriptures in a long time, these guys aren't just grasping at straws. Yeah. They're not trying to force a square peg into a round hole and, well, it's close enough, and I guess we'll just go with that one. The reason why they were willing to die for their faith is because they saw it. Yeshua walks with them all the way through the prophets, right. Psalms, right. Moses, and says, this is talking about me. Well, we see that they are so ingrained in their heads as they're writing down their recollections of what Yeshua said and what he did that they're making illusions without even maybe they're not even seeing it. They're just going, ah, huh, hadn't thought about that one before. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and they don't feel compelled to, as you put it, make it a rock solid, perfect translation matchup thing because it's so overwhelmingly obvious. Right. And we have to remember, tens of thousands of Orthodox Jews found it absolutely Believable. no problem. Yeah. And they didn't even have the apostolic, you know, the gospel to read. Right. And, you know, tear through it and all of that. It was like, how many do you want? You only only want 15? Shmuel, listen, 15. Here we go. First, let's talk about the donkey. You know the donkey? No, not Balaam's donkey. Moron, the other donkey. You know? Just, it's so cool. And I I think we forget that the guys back then had most of, of, certainly, the Torah committed to memory, but much of the Tanakh. Mm -hmm. It was just so familiar to them. You know, they they weren't watching TV. They weren't reading comic books. That was it. Come on. Give us uh, the closing prayer there. Try and pluralize it for us and we'll have a quick glass of wine and call it a night. I think this was great. We did about an hour and a half on three chapters and and, uh, I hope everybody out there loved it. This was great. I I had a good time. This was good. 
I've never been a deep dive in Zakaria, so this is really beneficial for me. Well, hopefully, any guys who couldn't make it tonight, I, I think, is Brock back next week? I think he yeah, is, yes. right? So, hopefully, the guys that aren't here tonight that are traveling or whatnot will listen to the, to the thing, and they'll study and be prepared. I mean, we may even have a better discussion next week, which I thought was going to be a little flat, because the next oracle is, is wild. I mean, you're, you're either going to have to lean on your own understanding of other prophecies and start tying in all other, other, other places, or I, I just don't know how it's going to go. So, good. I thank you, Odinai, my God, that you have established our portion with those who dwell in the city hall, and you have not established our portion with idlers. Hmm. For the, uh, we arise early, and they arise early. We arise early for words of Torah, and they arise early for idle words. We toil, and they toil. We toil and receive reward, and they toil and do not receive reward. We run, and they run. We run to the life of the world to come, and they run to the pit of destruction. As it is written, And you, O God, you will lower them into the well of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit shall not live out half their days. But as for me, as for us, we will trust in you. Amen. That's a really neat um, way to close it, considering the we were talking about pits with oh, the water. Oh, that's right. <laughs> well of destruction.